Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. Trade is in the air these days, thanks to Donald Trump, thanks to his tweets, uh, other things like that. Uh, Hillary Montfus is a political scientist at, at Yale, a graduate student there. She wrote a piece for Vox critiquing some of the Democrats' proposals to go sort of even beyond Trump on trade protection in, in some ways. I disagreed with her a little, also thought she made some good points. Uh, she agreed to come in, do a podcast where we could talk all about it. I think it's a really interesting conversation. Check it out. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, my guest today is Hillary Madfest. She is a PhD student at Yale um, and uh, wrote a really interesting piece uh, for Vox about trade and, and progressives. Um, and this was focused around uh, Elizabeth Warren, who we we talk a lot about on The Weeds because she she does a lot of PDFs and, and <laughs> stuff about uh, her, her ideas. And so she put out a kind of a big trade thing, and it was— um, it was not just like Donald Trump is bad and I'm going to do the opposite. It was in a lot of ways like I'm going to go beyond Donald Trump in skepticism of international trade agreements, uh, set a very, very high bar for uh, making them. Uh, and, and, and Hillary, you you didn't love it. I didn't. Thank you for that, that euphemistic take uh, because so many of my <laughs> friends – uh, we're on the receiving end of kind of all caps text like, oh, she's so good on so much else. Why is this so bad? Um, and to kind of put my cards on the table here, the bulk of the piece, the kind of stats of the piece, I actually wrote a while ago in response to some of Trump's trade policies. Mm -hmm. And then I just found myself so profoundly frustrated that this incredibly kind of prolific progressive policymaker, and I dare you to try and say that given the alliteration there, <laughs> uh, was falling into the same traps. Because uh, Dan Dresner had a, a great kind of write-up in um, the Washington Post saying that Liz Warren's plan would go further than Donald Trump's uh, current policies in implementing protectionist policies in the United States. Uh, and I see this as like bad politics and bad policy. Mm -hmm. So how is that? I mean, let's just like explain the basic mechanics here. Like what what does it mean? So Trump has done um what have we got like tariffs on uh washing machines, uh some some appliances, now a bunch of Chinese stuff. Um it rattles stock market, um things like that. So what what does Warren want to do? 
Sure. Before I get to, to what Warren wants to do, I, I think that people kind of, their eyes glaze over when you call things tariffs, right? Because that's kind of a boring esoteric thing that sure, sounds too. like 19th century, like British aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Tariffs are taxes on American consumers. Mm-hmm. And what Trump has done, in addition to a tax plan that's disastrous for the working class Americans and the American middle class, is to now add insult to injury with these tariffs. So I just have to put that out there. Now, what Liz Warren wants to do is emotionally I connect with, mm-hmm. right? She wants to connect uh, American progressive objectives, including labor rights, environmental protections, um, ensuring that labor isn't kind of a race to the bottom on the global scale by instituting a kind of nine-pronged test for the United States before it got a free trade agreement with any other country. And she also wants to renegotiate existing trade agreements to pass this kind of nine-pronged test, which people have kind of like pointed out laughingly, like the United States doesn't even pass that test. Um, I mean, I should say not laughingly. I mean, I I talked about this uh, with with her team before they rolled it out. And I mean, they, they said, like, we are aware the United States of America does not meet these tests. Like, one of them is that you have to be in the Paris Climate Accords, um, which is, I think, actually sort of not a big deal substantively because almost every country is. But that's like the United States isn't, right? So, like, just quite open. Like, this is going to be a, a a difficult bar to pass. So, in the, the sort of sentence before she lays this out uh, in this trade plan, she says, in the past, America has had some of these commitments to labor standards or environmental standards, but we haven't enforced them. And then moves on to a more stringent test, but doesn't discuss a more stringent enforcement mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I think for the first time in my life, people might accuse me of being a moderate because I'm like, well, instead of the sweeping reform, maybe mm-hmm. we could just <laughs> enforce the standards that we already have. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, fundamentally— these proposed reforms don't lay out a mechanism to better enforce them. And in fact, you know, some of us are watching with horror as the UK tries to negotiate Brexit. Mm -hmm. And so you're now introducing this very kind of complex set of standards without also discussing, okay, what happens if we get into a trade agreement with these states, if we manage to clear all of the hurdles that Dan Dresner has done a beautiful job of laying out, to reach an agreement, and then they falter. Right. How do we negotiate our way out of these trade agreements? And, right. like, there's not a clear answer for that, and we're watching, you know, what what would a no-deal Brexit look like? Well, what would a no-deal whatever trade agreement uh, kind of exit look like? But, I mean, I think it's, it's clear, right? I mean, in effect, she's saying, like, we're not going to have these trade agreements, right? I mean, there's a nine-point test, but, like, Nobody meets them. It, it doesn't seem super realistic that anybody would. And this is a way of saying, like, there would not be a deal like Trans-Pacific Partnership because, like, that was a deal it, like Vietnam was in it, a, a bunch of other developing countries. And they're, like, they're nowhere near clearing uh, those kind of hurdles. Um, so there wouldn't be a TPP. And uh, – I mean, obviously, to a lot of people, like, that's the point, right? That, like, the Obama administration had a plan and it was going to be, um, I don't know, like NAFTA, but for this whole range of Pacific countries, it was going to 
further encourage um, offshoring of jobs, further open, you know, domestic markets to to imports from abroad. And in exchange, like, I don't know, like American banks, we're going to get to offer financial services in, in Ho Chi Minh City, but like, who cares? So three points on that. Uh, and who cares? I care, obviously. Um, you care. A, bunch of, a bunch of trade and econ geeks care. Um, but no, to your, your broader point of like, who cares? Well, to think about trade agreements as merely agreements that allow for the buying and selling of goods and services overlooks a lot of the politics of trade. And particularly in something like the TPP, there was this kind of huge political push. It was a way for the United States to engage in these trade agreements uh, and build a more robust set of alliances in the face of an ascendant China. Mm -hmm. And so when Trump withdraws from this deal, it's not just, oh, you know, this kind of minuscule in terms of, you know, global trade or, or U.S. trade or U.S. GDP opportunity has been removed. We're also just like sort of ceding this political space to China. And, and there's been some like great political analysis of that. Secondly, Alice Evans, uh, who's with the the London School of Economics. She had this really interesting paper that was looking at Vietnam uh, and in part some of the mobilization surrounding the TPP. And she lays out this like beautifully written article that looks at how the opportunities and some of the standards set by the TPP was a means of empowering uh, Vietnamese labor organizers to, to engage with some of the changes. So I think that Elizabeth Warren and many progressives' demonization of the TPP Overlooks that, sure, it's not perfect, but that's policy. You point me to the perfect policy, I'll show you one that's never mm -hmm. been implemented, right? Sure. Um, is, is frustrating. Uh, and then thirdly, without free trade, it, it, things will not be the status quo. Like, autarky, which is self-reliance and, and producing everything domestically that you consume, would not have an America that's consuming the things that it is currently consuming. Mm -hmm. Um and some people, you know, will do that. Oh, well, we don't need all this imported plastic nonsense from China, uh -huh. um, which is some of the feedback I got on Twitter. So thanks. Tweet at me. <laughs> but it, it's actually more than that because so many American businesses rely on imported inputs to produce their goods, both for domestic and foreign consumption. And fundamentally, if you shut down free trade, you reduce global productivity. So it won't be this shared growth and a resurgence of workers. It will be shared immiseration. It's true, though, right? Like, we have had a lot of um, changes to, to the global trade dynamic over the past 20, 30 years, right? And, you know, this has brought a lot of problems to communities that are built around um, certain kinds of manufacturing industries. And, I mean, I know if you go um, – Parts of the southeastern United States, they had textile mills, they had furniture factories, um, and that stuff has all, you know, gone off to, to Asia. Um, in, in the Midwest, you have some more heavy industry. A lot of the auto parts, um, you know, supply chain has has gone to Mexico, has, has gone to China, things like that. And fundamentally saying like, no, we need to put a stop to that, it, it seems to me, like, has a lot of appeal to to a lot of people. I mean, I guess you're saying to an extent, like, well, we got to do it for the for the sake of the Vietnamese. Um, you know, we we owe it to them to to let them let them take our jobs. Uh, oof, coming out swinging. Uh, we're going to be arm <laughs> wrestling for a neoliberal shill of the year award. Um, and I'm about to take take the lead. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, no, so it's not. Oh, we owe it to the Vietnamese to sacrifice American workers. Americans benefit tremendously. 
from trade. It's just the fact that that benefit is diffuse. Mm-hmm. And the pain is very, very concentrated. Right. Um, and so, you know, you can look in the literature on collective action and all sorts of, like, really geeky uh, political science fundamentals that I'm resisting myself, uh, <laughs> I'm resisting diving into. But uh, they're better able to organize and articulate these demands than millions of Americans going, yeah, like, my industry does benefit from importing widgets from wherever. Mm-hmm. Or I do quite like not having to pay $120 for a pair of jeans. That makes my life quite better. But beyond that, even blaming trade for the job loss is a little bit off base, right? Because there's, in my view, very compelling research that says, actually, it's it's automation and it's increases in productivity. Right. Uh, and so one of the things that actually bothered me about Warren's plan is that there was no mention of what do we do with displaced workers? Mm-hmm. Um, because in a theoretically kind of closed economy, we would still, I hope, have advances in productivity, potentially automation. Uh, that's a reality that we deal with even in the absence of trade. And there's no plan for, okay, you've lost your job. How do we integrate you into this new economy? Right. I mean, I, I do think this has been, you know, always one of the sticky kind of political topics here, right, which is that in theory, what you should do is provide assistance to people who are adversely impacted. But in a practical sense, right, the the potential constituency for assistance is the people who are losing out in trade. But, like, they don't want assistance. Like, what they want is to not lose their job in the first instance, right? I mean, it's like, I I mean, I'm thinking with a little like politics hat on, it's like, why doesn't she go into this, right? And and that's why, right? Like, if you're going to offer people a trade proposal, what you want to offer them is like the hope and the promise that their life as it exists is going to be stabilized. You don't want to talk about like what's coming around the corner. Right. And I think that's also just kind of a communications issue that we've been dealing with since the 90s, where globalization is like Avatar, where it's so hyped and like kind of during it, people are like, this is like pretty cool and new. And then afterwards, we're like, oh, there were so many issues with how that was structured and communicated. And perhaps it did not deserve all of the plaudits it was getting in the heart of it. Um, and then we all kind of shrug along. Um, but globalization is now overpromised and underdelivered. And I don't think the corrective to that is ignoring economic fundamentals In my view, it would be learning how to better communicate them. Like, we're going to build a more productive, higher-skilled, like, economy that works for you and your family by allowing you to afford the goods that you buy every day. Uh, Don't you want to be a part of this? To me, would be a little bit better of a sell. Okay, well, uh, let's take a break, because then I I do want to sort of, like, delve into, like, politics-y type things. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, It can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. 
Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrowcom slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrowcom slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. One thing that's really changed over the course of my career, right, is uh, when, when I was starting uh, here in the, like, early mid-aughts, I think the sense was that uh, free trade, like all the Republicans were for, and a lot of the Democrats were also for, moderate Democrats. But the left-wing Democrats were like in hock to these like gross, unfashionable union guys, and they were all protectionists. But it was like a huge, this was like a millstone around Democrats, right? These like these like sad factory dudes. And and you know, the winners, like Bill Clinton, were the were the pro-trade. Democrats, then Trump becomes president, right, running on a very, very strong anti-trade rhetoric, stuff that was much, much more – his actual policies have been very – protectionist, but like what he said as a candidate was like way beyond what, what he's actually even done. Um, and he wins, right? He he wins in Michigan. He wins in Wisconsin. He wins in Pennsylvania. And now I think, you know, one possible reaction to that is for Democrats to say, OK, like the parties are realigning. Um, and I feel like if if Hillary Clinton had won, there would be like a ton of momentum behind that. Be like, OK, Trump adopted this like goofball protectionism and then we beat him uh, and we're onward into the the, the globalist future. Uh, but instead, Trump won, right? So there's, I think, a strong sense uh, in a lot of quarters, people who don't have strong feelings on the, on the merits that like, well, he was on to something, right? Like Ohio is now this like deep red state. Uh, Michigan, uh, he, he's picking up Pennsylvania. And so like, what do we do, right? We, we clearly like the workers have been left behind and we need to match them. I think the political establishment takes people's views on trade as a given when they're actually pretty malleable. Mm. Um, And so uh, Yotam Margalit did this incredible study, uh, I believe it was in Japan, where she showed that if you prime people to think of themselves as consumers, they are much more likely to support trade um, than if they were primed to think of themselves as workers. Um, And so getting back to just communicating the issue of trade, right, I think— a lot of the progressives' framing 
of trade really emphasizes what's happened to workers, what's happened to workers, which is actually a pretty, like, striking rhetorical contrast to how they discuss so many other issues, which is working-class American families. Working-class American families can't afford rent. Working-class American families can't afford college. Working-class American families can't afford health care. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's, man, we've really messed with workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's one area where I actually think the kind of political class and the communications class can be shaping— attitudes towards trade by presenting very real facets Mm -hmm. of how trade impacts them as part of their identity. So this is like we're talking about, okay, um, I've got a plan to make washing machines cheaper. That sounds good, right? Exactly. People like washing machines. and like, what's the plan? Well, the plan is stop having a special 20% tax on Korean washing machines. Exactly. Another kind of academic point is that so much of the literature examining support for trade or resistance to trade has found that it's education levels Hmm. um, that predict uh, your support for trade. And that's not just a function of, uh, as a Yale PhD student, I don't have to worry (laughs) about immigration affecting my job. Um, Mm -hmm. A study by Hamuler, Hiscox, and Margalit, which is like the genesis of trade studies, like here is your super group, um, did this really incredible uh, survey broken down by um, industries to look at a variety of industries and found that, uh, you know, across the board, there was support for high-skilled immigration. And that support increased the the higher skilled the person was and the more education uh, they had achieved. Uh, And so there's this argument that trade and people's attitudes about trade aren't even necessarily developed because of how trade will impact them individually. It can be a function of what they see trade as a symbol of, uh, you know, whether or not it's globalism mm-hmm. uh, with heavy air quotes. Well, let's 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 cash out that immigration example, actually, because I think I, I think people people could miss the, the the significance there. Right. But so the idea is, OK, so we we have immigration and, you know, it has pros and cons. People like it. People don't like it. And one reason might be sort of your position in the objective material class structure. So like I have my fancy Vox job and I also have a four-year-old. And so I love low-skilled immigrants because I want to hire like somebody to clean my house and not pay her that much. Um, But then I might hate the idea of like college graduates from Canada moving here because they're going to take my job in the takes mines, right? Um, And what you're saying is that the study shows that that doesn't doesn't follow, right? That the that the more skilled workers are more supportive, including of skilled immigration. Yes. So it's basically it's like it's a it's an identity formation question, not a like narrow self interest question. That 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 more educated people see themselves as I don't know what like n- not averse to foreigners. Exactly. And so you can you can think about it as sort of like a, a package of values, which gets at one of my issues kind of fundamentally with progressive suspicion of trade mm-hmm. is that, like I said earlier about the TPP, trade isn't just about the movement of goods and people. It, it's connected to America's role in the world. And so I see progressive resistance to trade as kind of part and parcel of this neo-isolationist in mm-hmm. progressive foreign policy that 
to me is, I mean, ultimately counterproductive and, uh, in in my opinion, really deleterious to the the well-being of people around the world. Well, so you said this thing about how, you know, it matters to people like what they think trade is a symbol for. And, and that's really interesting to me because I, I remember a conversation uh, I had here in the office with a sort of very important person in uh, the labor movement in, in the United States. And he was talking about um, we were thinking about the 2016 primary, but this was like before it really got got underway. And, you know, Obama and congressional Democrats and this and that, his feelings about everybody. And he was like talking a lot about trade. Right. And so I asked him at a certain point, I was like leaving aside like the question of who's right about this and who's wrong. Like, like, why are you bringing this up so much? Like, this is not it's not 1962, right? Like most of your members in the present day AFL-CIO, they're teachers, they're state and local government workers, uh, they're in SEIU doing home health care, janitorial stuff. Like they're, you know, if, if I was talking to the president of the steel workers, I would expect them to tell me like a lot <laughs> about the global steel market. But like this is not your membership, right? And, you know, he said to me like, yeah, like that that's true. Like fair enough, right? Like most of our people are, are not in these industries. but to him, it was the signpost for, like, who was on the side of working people versus who was, like, throwing in with uh, the the wrong side, right? So, so even acknowledging that, like, most of his membership was not directly in the trade-supporting industries, it was, like, too hard to go down the whole list of, like, every regulatory appointment that a president might make, but that... And first NAFTA, then China's ascension to to um, the WTO, and then TPP were symbolic of like the Democratic Party's betrayal of like real progressive politics, and that's why it was so important to him to like see how people stand on this, and then Trump winds up jujitsuing them on this, right? Like when you go into campaign 2016, right, the, the AFL-CIO is trying to say to people like, hey, like this is the minimum wage, there's health care, there's taxes, there's like a million things on the ballot, right? But like it was coded as like a sign that you were willing to stand up to big business on behalf of workers was that you would tear up these trade deals. I'm sympathetic uh-huh. to that. <laughs> But what's kind of interesting is that it's now, okay, let's swap out one narrow interest, which before I even get into kind of this thought experiment, it's worth noting that, and I said this in the piece, you don't have to have a nefarious set of big business lobbyists for freer trade in the United States to benefit capital-rich industries. I mean, that's just predicted by uh, this, like, very wonky trade model. The Stolper-Samuelson Exactly. Hector Olin, Stolper-Samuelson theorem. Like, I actually think it's a little bit disingenuous sometimes that progressives rely on this, like, kind of uh, villainous portrayal of big businesses, even though—and I, I am a bleeding-heart liberal—but, um, like, this this portrayal is just unnecessary. We can grapple with what are the fundamentals of what opening to trade well, actually, can, do. Let, let, let me get you to explain that. So why, what, what, what does Stolper and Samuelson say? Why, why is it that opening to trade sort of advantages capital even without, like, a twirly mustache behind the curtain? <laughs> so the kind of great alchemy of trade— is that when you engage in free trade, 
the economies specialize in producing what they are better at. And mm -hmm. so if you have Madagascar and the United States of Hillary engage in trade with one another, uh, and I specialize in wine production, which is labor-intensive, and I have more labor in my country, and you specialize in cheese production, which is capital-intensive because you have more capital in your country, together, we will both have a, a really killer wine-tasting party right. with a variety of cheese and more wine than we could have produced individually and then summed together. Right. So it's something like we swap some wine for some cheese, and then both countries wind up with more total wine and cheese than, exactly. than we had previously. And that, that's the alchemy of kind of specialization and the gains from free trade. But it also means that there are, there are quote-unquote, winners and losers mm -hmm. in each economy. And so uh, the former cheesemakers in my country uh, who had a, a more capital-intensive industry are put at a disadvantage. But the winemakers in my country are amped because mm -hmm. we're specializing in doing what we do well, and that's wine. That's kind of the, the background of trade. So the United States uh, is much more akin to— Madaglesiastan in sure. the example because we're an incredibly capital-rich country. And so when we open to trade, we specialize in the things that we have this comparative advantage in producing, which is capital-intensive goods. And that's a vast oversimplification of the dynamics of international trade, but does speak to kind of the moving parts. The more that the United States engages in free trade, the more our economy will benefit those who are engaged in capital-intensive production. Right. And so this is like Basically, like like complicated stuff, right? Like the United States makes uh, airplanes and medical equipment, and we hold um, like important pharmaceutical patents. We have uh, big software companies, things like that, right? So, so more and more gets sucked. Uh, more and more of like our producer side resources go into those industries, and the people who have those skills or who own those factories really benefit from getting to sell to more and more more kinds of places right that's the the the, the pro like the big promise of trade with china i mean some of it is like we get chinese stuff <laughs> but then some of it is like we're selling the boeing planes there right and and we would have liked i think to have all our internet services there but it but it didn't work out that's a good point boeing a weird one in the the current <laughs> climate but yeah sure yeah um, no 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 but um the point that that, that we we were starting with right is this offers a kind of systematic advantage, though, to just like people who are like capital rich in the sense of like they have a lot of money. And those who are engaged in in capital intensive production. So capital can be either money or it can be, you know, this machinery, which you usually need money to get in the first right. place. But uh, you can get into a lot of kind of wonky issues of factor specificity where the machines that produce Boeing planes, I imagine, are, are rather specific, whereas cash in your pocket is uh, it's a little bit less specific. It's general, yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, and I, I just want to get to this point because it, it does irk me a little bit when people talk about, you know, progressives resting away power from these special interests serving a narrow class. I absolutely agree that corporations should have less influence in the United States. And I think until we tackle Citizens United, that will be nothing but a talking point. But to rest away control or, or, or that disproportionate um, influence in trade negotiations to give it to coal miners or uh, automobile factory employees is at the same time still disadvantaging the broad class of American workers because it is fundamentally a much smaller proportion of the population that is suffering from opening to trade than is benefiting from it. It's just that these 
the kind of losses from trade for those people are particularly acute and particularly concentrated, um, both in terms of the number of people, the scale of their loss, and frequently the geography of the loss, then the benefits, which is just like, oh, cool, I can afford to buy the things that I need on a day-to-day wait, basis. I, wait, so I mean, this is a real sort of question with, with the Warren proposal, right? Because like one of the things she says, we talked about her nine-point test, but she, she also talks about a kind of process reform where right now um, there's these advisory panels and they are very dominated by business interests. And so she's basically saying, well, instead of having like the CEOs of a bunch of companies come in and say, these should be our negotiating uh, objectives, we should have like workers in the relevant industries come in, which, you know, I mean, that does sound nice. It's just maybe even a good idea. But you're still leaving out of that conversation the majority of people in America who are just not like involved in trade exposed industries one way or the other, right? So it's like if you're a nurse someplace or a teacher or you drive a taxi or you work in a restaurant uh, or you're a lawyer, um, like most of the jobs that people have, you're selling services to other people, usually in the same city where you live. Um, And your fundamental interest in all of this is that like it just would be good to get cheap stuff. Right. I mean, that that is one of the benefits of trade. It's cheap stuff. And the fact that we can raise the overall kind of productivity of the economy, both domestically and the world over. So free trade expands the size of the pie. Mm-hmm. Where we get into the politics is just how do we use the gains from trade to compensate those who lose from it? All right. Let's take a break and then let's let's ask how we do that. Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is like a super tedious argument, but it's like somebody will say like, oh, trade is good. And then somebody else says, no, the trade is distributional consequences. And then I'll say, well, we should handle that with redistribution. And then the punchline is like, ah, but that never happens. So it's happened. It's just happened badly, right? And mm-hmm. and reform isn't sexy, right? So there's the, the trade assistance program mm-hmm. that's been developed and it's been assessed. And the assessments walk away saying like, wow, this could be a lot better. Um, And instead of the response being like, oh, we should make that better then, Mm -hmm. uh, it frustrates me to see progressives like scrap trade. And it's like there's a clear opportunity for reform there. It's Mm -hmm. similar kind of like it's the same like emotional response of like, oh, there's there's a simpler way to improve the system that we know benefits a tremendous number of people. Uh, And and we've seen that, you know, the trade assistance program doesn't 
work as well as we want it to, nor is it being used by the number of people that we hoped it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so expanding and improving that to me would be a better way to kind of look at reforming trade and getting at these distributional consequences um, instead of just kind of flipping over the table mm-hmm. and saying. Something, something that strikes me about trade adjustment assistance, um, which which really hasn't like worked super well, right, is that I feel like one of the problems is that it's so focused on the individual, right, on the idea that like, okay, I lost my job because of trade, so now the government is going to give me personally some kind of help, which both it becomes hard to sort of identify, right? Like, was it exactly trade or was it, you know, something else Was it trade and automation? Was it the fact that the profit margins had been shrinking for years and it would eventually get there? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the world is complicated. And then it also, (laughs) it doesn't, what it doesn't get at is the sort of community level issue, right? Which is that, like, if you live in a city that has 37 factories spread across five industries and one of those factories closes, like, that's probably fine. Like, you are you are not going to be thrilled, but, like, life will go on. You'll get a job someplace else. People will continue to have jobs. But if you are, like, Toledo and you're specialized in glass manufacturing and then all the glass factories close, that's, like, that's a problem for the people who worked at the factories, but, like, it's a problem for everybody, right? Like you could just be like the guy who runs the gas station, but it's like if the whole regional economy is shutting down, you have like a like a really big problem, right? And if I could if I could like do the 21st century over again, like th- that would have been <laughs> how I would have done it differently, right? It said like we need to look at like what whole places are going to have a problem as like China gets on the bandwagon and we need to do something like and the the macro picture rather than like like help this one guy. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and the failure to address the kind of community wide losses because it then also doesn't just affect everyone that was working in that factory, right? Like it leads to just kind of these pockets of real economic recession or depression because those people lose their jobs. And then it is a drain on haircutteries, diners, right. all of those things that you think should be robust to the introduction of trade. And so, yeah, redesigning the trade uh, adjustment assistance program to address more of these community-level needs would, I think, be both more effective and also would make it a bit easier to target, right? Finding individuals and determining you lost your job because of this agreement is really difficult. It's not needle in a haystack, but it is one person in a sea of quite a number of people. There's this research uh, done, again, by Yotam Margalit, and she's looking at— what happens politically mm-hmm. in in these instances? And she uh, finds that there's this, like, tremendous anti-incumbent effect looking at uh, voting in 2000 and 2004 related to trade-related job losses. But those effects, that anti-incumbent effect, was actually smaller in places where the government certified people as being harmed by trade and then offered them kind of special job training. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while I certainly don't think, you know, kind of government intervention surrounding trade-related job losses would be a panacea for polarization in the United States, Mm -hmm. a government that's willing to say quickly, we understand that this policy has harmed you. We are here to help you adjust in this circumstance leads to perhaps a more measured and 
balanced polity. And, and certainly in in her uh, study, at least allows the incumbent to keep their job instead of what I think we're seeing now on both the left and the right, which is like, you know, drain the swamp, get out all these people who have sold out American workers, like cut out the the corporation's hold on American trade policy. Um, and so trade adjustment assistance could be both a, an economic and a political kind of stabilizer right. in the United States. So to, to leave that out of the discussion is just surprising to me. Uh-huh. We had started talking about how um, people's views, views to trade are, are shaped by kind of, you know, identity um, t- type things and, and education level. Uh, but, you know, in terms of like if if you're thinking of hard-nosed politics, right, I mean, if there's something that is popular among uh, college-educated professionals and unpopular among uh, working-class people without college degrees, um, you know, one, one of the big things you see in the Trump era uh, is that I, I think actually a lot of college graduates underestimate how many working-class people there are in America. <laughs> um, it's like most most people, like, they, they haven't gone to college. And uh, if you're trying to craft a politics, it needs to be responsive to their worldviews. Um, and if they are skeptical of trade, then, like, what what are you going to do? Communicate to them how trade has made their life profoundly more affordable and, uh-huh. and given them the ability to buy more things for less money, to be able to put, you know— imported food that's very cheap on mm-hmm. on the dinner table at night. Um no I, I I'm sensitive to these these charges of elitism because I'm I'm from a little town in Georgia. Um no, but I am from suburban Georgia and I went to Georgia public school and mm-hmm. I've worked very hard to become this kind of like snotty liberal elite uh that I'm <laughs> often accused of being. Uh and well, so congratulations. I, thank you so much. You've really you've done it. Uh mom and dad's so proud. Um no, so I'm sympathetic to that. But to me, it comes down to do we want our progressive politicians to be engaging in what is, to me, fundamentally reactionary rhetoric mm-hmm. that won't improve many of these people's lives? Uh, or do we want them to be reframing trade in a way that's still very true uh, as a policy that has vastly improved their purchasing power? Right. Um, say it in a, a better and less wonky way, but, you know, something, something, they don't want a food fight, they want food on the table. Or, you know, there's there's a way to frame this that, that allows people to recognize that trade has benefited communities throughout the United States. A question that I think goes closer to even the concerns that, you know, uh, fancy liberals have about the world um, is the way trade intersects with environmental regulations, right? So, I mean, I think everybody uh, on the left thinks like there should be environmental regulations. But then if you can sort of, if if a company can make stuff while not following those regulations by making it in another country, maybe if we're talking about like, well, they're polluting the lake, then like maybe we don't care because it's not our lake. Even that seems a little a little dubious, though, because, you know, the lakes all flow together. We, we've got an ecosystem. Uh, but definitely on the climate change issue, right, like it's, it's, it's one atmosphere, right? So it seems difficult to be just completely indifferent to the question of, you know, are we going to be like outsourcing pollution and another bad externality is by turning trade into a mechanism to evade regulation. Absolutely. <laughs> I was about to say absolutely, and I don't mean we're absolutely doing that, but I, I absolutely feel those concerns. One of the things that kind of bothers me about that argument, though, is that it's it's frequently a straw man, right? Because uh-huh. trade agreements oftentimes do have environmental uh, protections 
put in place. Mm -hmm. So then the issue is how do we enforce them? Mm -hmm. And then one of the areas where I do think you can make like a really interesting progressive case is that there's been corporate impunity for all sorts of environmental degradation that's happened abroad. Mm -hmm. An issue then that's a bit separate from trade. But uh, again, Alice Evans is currently doing really incredible work about how do you kind of manage corporate governance abroad? And how do you, uh, as kind of local communities, organize to demand corporate social responsibility? Um, hmm. I used to work in um, in Nigeria, uh, and the oil spills that occurred uh, in the Niger Delta were devastating yeah. to communities. And now the, the cleanup is delayed, and it's, it's truly a tragedy. Um, I don't think that that's something necessarily, though, that we should walk away and be like, if we weren't importing Nigerian oil, this wouldn't have happened. And and to kind of pin that blame on trade, right? Like the the issue is that corporations uh, were not held accountable for kind of breaches in safety or laws um, because of either domestic weaknesses or the United States not really caring uh, right. if it if it happens there. So that gets into kind of corporate governance, which is. A whole separate issue that goes above and beyond trade. And even if you nix trade, you'll still have all of those issues. Right. But I mean, I, I did feel like this was a big part of the spirit of like Warren's proposal to set a higher bar for, for trade deals, though, was to say that, look, like you need to have um, coordination on environmental and, and labor regulation. And, you know, it, I think it's 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 tricky, right? Because if you envision this as well, there's going to be a total shutdown of global trade because we we can't agree, right? That sounds very bad. Uh, on the other hand, if you say like, well, okay, Mexico is going to use less polluting methods to create cement uh, because we've renegotiated NAFTA to sort of raise the bar there, then then that sounds kind of good. It does sound kind of good, but how do you enforce it, right? right? And that's not addressed in the plan uh, while she admits that we're having trouble enforcing the current standards. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps some of the the takes on this would shut down global trade uh, are hyperbolic. But does coordination matter if everyone walks away from the table with no agreement and you get none, none of the standards? Right. Well, this was the the other question I, I wanted to press you on because where, where I feel like I, I sort of had my, my biggest – uh, disagreement with with your take on this is just that the difference between like trade and trade agreements, which it's like they're very similar words. Uh, but you know, if you're out there in in listener land, right? Um, if if you look at the list of American uh, trade partners, um, two of our biggest ones are Canada and Mexico, and that's for for two reasons. We do a lot of trade with Canada and Mexico, right? One is they're next to the United States of America. The other is we have NAFTA, right, which is like a big honking thing designed <laughs> to facilitate trade. But our other big trade partners are China, Japan, and Germany, and we don't have free trade agreements with those countries. They're just big countries. Uh, they make a lot of stuff. We import a lot of their stuff. They import a lot of our stuff. And that's okay. A thing a person might propose is like, you shouldn't be allowed to import anything from China. And, We're heading that way. <laughs> right. Well, but to say like, well, we shouldn't do free trade agreements just strikes me as, as actually like a different a different thing that should not necessarily prompt the same level of freaking out. So why do you think that the United States kind of official agreements with trade partners mm -hmm. 
being renegotiated after what will have been four years of, frankly, disastrous interactions with our allies being renegotiated. And then essentially, if you believe the kind of the sky is falling takes, taking off of the table the ability of the United States to construct alliances Mm -hmm. uh, or set global standards with some of the non-major powers and non-major trading partners of the United States. Why, let me turn it around on you a a bit more kind of like aggressively. How can you be cavalier though about this? Well, that's that's to me the interesting question, right? Because you then get into a like, well, are we talking about economic policy or are we talking about foreign policy? And that's that's the beauty of international trade here is that you get to talk about both. Sure. And, and right now, it, this is perhaps tangential, but the United States has a massive reputation issue right now sure. to pull out of the Paris agreements, amongst so many of the other things that we're doing uh, right now under the Trump administration, to come into office with a, a new, let's say Democrats win in 2020 and progressives put in office, and they enact Warren's trade plan, let's say any progressive enacts this trade plan, to go to our allies and say, we're actually going to renegotiate the trade agreements that we currently have makes us look like an even less reliable partner uh, at a time when kind of our strategic adversaries, uh, if you believe uh-huh. like the the new um, Department of Defense guidance about what we care about now, mm-hmm. at a time when uh, Russia and, and China are trying to expand their influence to say like, you know, we're going to we're going to say jump, you're going to say hi, how high on these trade agreements is to me, self-defeating and makes us look like an unreliable negotiating partner. But this is where, you know, the, the you mentioned, you know, China, our, our, our great new adversary, right? And no, but this, this is where sort of the rubber hits the road because so much of the angst about trade in the United States over, over the past 15, 20 years has been about China. Um, but then so much of the sort of uh, talk about trade agreements winds up having an important foreign policy element. And for a long time, like the the take in like DC foreign policy establishment was well we need to do trade with China because that's going to like make China be good, uh, but now there's like a new harsher take on China which is like that they're bad and we need to we need to do trade with other countries to like stick it to China. Um, but then that means that when Trump has now started this series of specifically China-focused trade wars, I'm now hearing actually more sort of enthusiasm from that, from national security people, from, you know, Pentagon people, because, like, it's hard for them to argue that, like, they need, you know, $100 billion extra dollars to fight a war with China if also we're going to have our whole industrial supply chain over there. So this idea of like decoupling as a national security thing has become this like this like really hot topic o- over the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, that does like that makes me scared uh, because I, I am afraid of wars. Um, but but it also makes me worry when people offer like the the anti-Chinese alliance system as the reason why we need imports from Vietnam. So when you get into the, the kind of a discussion about trade or economic relations between strategic adversaries, like, I think it's important to note then you're talking about kind of exceptional, though profoundly important cases. Mm-hmm. And the broader point about free trade is, is that it is in overall good. Mm-hmm. Now getting into kind of the strategic discussions about how do we grapple with the fact that 
uh, we import a tremendous number of goods from China uh, while disagreeing fundamentally with their domestic political system and many of their foreign policy objectives. What I see a lot of progressives doing is to say, we're just going to pull back from international trade, Mm -hmm. which to me seems to solve none of the problems. It solves not the issue of wage stagnation in the United States. It does not lead to kind of a more prosperous working class America, nor does it counter the fact that we have like a a fundamentally kind of a liberal actor emerging on the world stage, flexing kind of economic influence um, abroad, but also kind of a a political model that to me is is normatively undesirable, someone that really values freedom of expression and freedom of association. I see American free trade agreements, uh, our economic partnerships, as a means of not only expanding trade and not only contributing to this prosperity, but also a way of kind of socializing the American political system and working with partners to ensure and enforce uh, kind of the the standards of freedom of expression, of environmental standards, um, and countering in that way in a liberal model. One of the things that's been really frustrating, and I just came back from seven weeks in Ethiopia where the Chinese presence is... Uh, it's everywhere. Um, uh-huh. um, you know, neither a good or a bad thing, but it's it's one of those kind of interesting moments where it's like, oh, all of the kind of chatter that you hear uh, amongst kind of the DC circuit is, you know, the China and Africa discussion. There's, you know, I feel like every month like a Brookings yeah, event. There's always on a it. good there's panel. Always, uh, and then you just see it, and you're like, oh, this is what they're they're talking about. So one of the the kind of biggest issues, though, with Chinese expansion in Africa comes down to telecommunications. Mm -hmm. And this is an area where the United States should be really well-placed to have a conversation here. You know, we happen to to host Apple and Google, um, right? We have a lot of telecommunications. We... We're so well connected, but this, but this is the the, the Huawei question, exactly. Right? So, so China, there's this Chinese company Huawei. They do a lot of different stuff. Uh, one of the things they do is they build uh, mobile phone network infrastructure, and at least the American security establishment says that they use it to to like smuggle and spy stuff. Right, and you know, there's been like a lot of kind of finger wagging with the United States telling, uh, particularly in Europe, like we won't work. U.S. government won't work on a Huawei-built system mm-hmm. because we don't think it's secure. And in Europe, that's like a fun policy conversation to have because you get to talk to kind of allies about how we want to approach this. Sure. In developing countries, it's a lot less fun of a conversation because it's a lot of finger-wagging and then trying to sell them a much more expensive good, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that is often a hard sell. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where it's like, well, you you can't do that because we don't want you to. You should definitely buy this more expensive system, though, right? And there you get into kind of some of the strategic considerations that are beginning to underlie American trade. And it's interesting that I haven't seen, though it could absolutely be there, there hasn't been a big push in the United States to say, okay, we f- we believe that Huawei-built telecommunication system are a fundamental threat to the security of information, you know, globally. And so we're going to really aggressively promote our telecommunication system and ensure that anyone who wants to buy it can buy it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I don't know if anyone was watching this, but like, I think it was a couple of years ago. So China built the new African Union building in Addis Ababa. Right. And like a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, 
it comes out that like, oh, they bugged the African Union. That's what they do. Exactly. And like, <laughs> there wasn't like the huge eruption that I would have expected. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, like amongst some expats this summer, there was like a joke about like, yeah, you know, I had to use the AU internet. So like now China has all my information. Uh, and then like the follow on joke is, you know, well, I had applied for a job at the U.S. government, and they got me in the OPM hack, so uh-huh. <laughs> now, now they've got a duplicate record. Right. I guess you're saying if you have this geopolitical concern about competition with, with China, you could be trying to um, address it more aggressively, right? Like actually saying, look, like we, we will give you money to buy our stuff, right? Instead of just trying to sort of go around every random country and say like, well, look, we're, we're going to be mad at you. That's exactly it. And I, I think that kind of the current progressive approach to trade and to China is kind of like st- sticking our heads in the sand, which is frustrating because I consider myself a progressive. Like this neo-isolationist strand in a progressive foreign policy, I think, doesn't serve progressive ideals. Um, And so we should be tying kind of American activity abroad to progressive normative values instead of just kind of drawing back and saying, like, everything's going to be fine. We need to just figure this out here. Okay, so before I let you go, uh, what what, what should I have asked you? What what, what did you want to talk about here that that we missed? You know, one one of the things that emerges out of this research is that the more education that a person has, the more likely they are to support trade. And that's not just a function of trade benefiting them. It's a set of shared values. And so it worries me to see progressives turning away from trade because it sort of speaks to me uh, or or signals to me a, a rejection of potentially that basket of cosmopolitan globalist goods that I value. Um, and so I, I think, you know, it's a communications issue. And uh, if I could get a, a PBS hour to just like chat trade with Hillary and walk everyone through the Heckscher Olin model, I'm sure that would fix everything. There you go. Okay. So thank you very much, uh, Hillary Matfis, uh, political scientist at Yale. Uh, thanks as always to Jeffrey Geld, uh, our producer. Uh, spread your, your love of cosmopolitan values by uh, giving us really good ratings on podcast apps, uh, recommending to, to all of your friends. Uh, should be fantastic. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Support for the show comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Vox. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus.